0: Welcome to the Talking with Tech Podcast. My name's Chris Bouguet, and I'm here with Rachel Madel. Rachel, what you got for me this week?
1: Okay, Chris, I want to kind of talk about a situation that I was in, and I want to know your thoughts. I think I already know your thoughts, but I just want to talk <laughs> through it, because it kind of sparked some some interesting you know, thoughts for me, and I think it's probably something that our listeners can relate to. Okay. Okay, so here's the statement. Kids who become proficient with their AAC stop trying to communicate verbally. So, let me give you the context of the situation. I was working with another SLP who's, uh, you know, working on the speech side of things, which in my practice, oftentimes families who have children with complex communication needs come to me and, you know, we set them up with AAC in addition to you know, language therapy that we're doing with the AAC, which is what my focus typically is, oftentimes a lot of my families will be seeing someone for the speech side of things. So they're trying to improve speech intelligibility, speech clarity. Some of the kids I work with have childhood apraxia of speech. Um, You know, many of them are autistic. So this is a common occurrence, you know, working On a team where there's an SLP who's solely focused on speech. And I don't, you know, we support, you know, that in our sessions, but we're not focused on that. I'm focused more on language and, you know, teaching kids how to communicate through AAC. So, you know, this SLP kind of shared that um, statement with me and I was thinking about it a lot. And, you know, at some level, we know that, you know, AAC does not prevent verbal speech from happening. That's a myth, and that's a myth that is very pervasive. And it's a myth that we talk about, you know, with families to make sure that they don't get afraid that AAC will replace verbal speech. Um, but you know, I I think that there's kind of this this period of time where we don't know what's going to happen, right? Especially with young kids, you know, we want to support all modalities of communication and you know we can support when they have verbal approximations and we can encourage those verbal approximations alongside of modeling you know without expectation on the AAC and so i think where i'm struggling with this is and and this is you know a case i've been working on for a few years at this point and the child has made a lot of success with AAC and is utilizing AAC i'd say as their primary form of communication but they also are very much interested in verbally communicating. So they will approximate. Um, but this this child has only a small repertoire of sounds, and you know I would say that hardly anything that this child tries to say, you know, verbally is understood. Uh, now I think mom and dad understand. Therapists who know him well understand, but you know, it's not universally understood. And so I think that, you know, he has started to rely and utilize the AAC more primarily than, you know, verbal speech. So I feel like I'm kind of at conflict here with, you know, this idea. I think at some level she's probably right, the SLP who kind of said this, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, right? Like I think that, you know, he is utilizing AAC more and he's more universally understood. Um, You know, and then we can kind of get into the whole, you know, working on verbal speech. And this is definitely something that a lot of families are still interested in and is improving speech intelligibility. Um, But I was kind of taken back by this, this comment. And I was like, how do I feel about this? Like, I feel like at some level she's not wrong, but I also feel like we kind of venture into dangerous territory when we start saying things like that because i feel like it can very easily be misconstrued so i don't know what do you think
0: chris let me just summarize what i think i heard you say here so a speech therapist that works primarily on articulation or phonetics made a statement that the minutes spent working on aac have impeded or inhibited the the growth in articulation or phonetics is that a fair summary
1: yeah I mean I think she was basically just saying like because he's become proficient using AAC he's trying he's not practicing speech as much which I would say is probably true Um, but I think the, the what's underneath that is well that's why he's not communicating more intelligibly with speech right
0: well this is what I'm trying to clarify is this is the speech therapist saying well if we could turn back time we should have put more minutes into speech and our and articulation uh, and that aspect and not AAC
1: and I don't know I don't know the answer to that <laughs> uh, but you know I think probably is what we're what I'm thinking which I think just kind of brings up a bigger issue, which is when you have families who want to work on both, you know, how do we navigate that? Like, how do we, and, and and I know how I navigate it. Meaning again, many families are coming to me specifically for AAC and I'm in charge of the language therapy, but I know a lot of our listeners, they're, they're not on these huge teams where it's like, you know, Janie works on speech and, you know, Rebecca works on AAC. It's like, I, I am the SLP and I'm responsible for all the things, right? All the goals. Um, so it's just, it's an interesting to thing to think about. And I feel like it's hard sometimes to navigate.
0: All right. Let me ask you some more questions. How many years has this student been using AAC?
1: So he has been utilizing AAC, I'd say for probably four or five years.
0: Okay. And how long has the student been, well, how old is the student?
1: Uh, let's see, I want to say he
0: is 12? 12, okay, so at the age of 8, AAC practices started, and we started practicing AAC, we started putting minutes into AAC, and the student has been working on speech therapy, and I mean speech therapy, like the articulation phonetics, Um, since, well, certainly since the age of three, right? Like, well, since, since they were born, really, they've been listening to speech sounds and, and right. But then maybe there's been organized speech therapy.
1: Right. So I'm guessing, yes, you know, the student was diagnosed with autism young and I'm sure had early intervention probably. And at least starting at three, I don't remember. It's hard for me to remember if the child had AAC prior to coming to me. I don't think so. Because I think it was like very much emphasis on speech and speech clarity and speech intelligibility.
0: Okay. Well, the reason I ask these questions is if the student's 12 years old now and they're more proficient with AAC than they are with speech, would it be fair to say the student is now making a choice to use the AAC as opposed to using speech?
1: It might, but the student does really try to approximate. So this will look like, you know, him communicating something On the AAC and then trying to say something, but it just kind of sounds like a vocalization or I mean, I guess maybe sometimes it's an approximation. He has a few speech sounds. So I'd say, yes, he is independently initiating more with AAC, but he's very vocal, like he's very much trying to say words. And it's hard for me to know if that's because he wants to say them or because he's been Trained and drilled by ABA to just like try to say them um, from a lot of conditioning of speech therapy, behavior therapy, things like that.
0: Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, well, let me uh, ask this because the way you're saying it is um, the way you're making it sound is that the student leads with the AAC, and then so I hit the buttons on the AAC, the voice output on my AAC device says something, and then I approximate what I heard. On the device as opposed to flip it around I've said something with my voice and it was I recognizing that the communication partner is not getting what I'm saying the breakdown has occurred I've recognized the breakdown I'm gonna go to AAC as a backup or as my as my second second choice
1: it's the first one and I would say that the student is not really repairing communication breakdowns independently
0: The student, when you say is like successful and proficient on the AAC, can we, let's talk about that for a second. What does that language look like for on the AAC? Is it single word requesting? Are they making multiple sentences? Are they commenting? Are they making jokes? Are they, you know, you know, all the pragmatic things and all the the syntactic things, like are they putting words together?
1: So I would say mostly requesting. Like, you know, 90% of my caseload, ninety ninety nine nine ninety nine point nine 99.9% of my caseload, um, mostly requesting mostly nouns, some core language after lots of repetition and practice within, you know, everyday routines that he's really motivated by lots of labeling. Now child's really interested in books. We've been doing, uh, actually did a literacy intensive with the family this summer and very much commenting too i would say when there's books out like he is saying a lot um again mostly nouns though mostly labeling of nouns so we've been trying to kind of expand into more core language and more abstract language concepts and he he can do it but he still you know he still kind of relies on the nouns um but within specific contexts, he's definitely using core language. He is putting two words together sometimes, um, mostly some type of verb and a noun, mostly for requesting. Um, but, you know, he's made a lot of progress. And I definitely think his receptive language is a lot higher than his expressive, like many of the students that we work with. Um, but, you know, he's he's very language delayed and it takes a lot of repetition to learn, these words and how to use them. And, you know, he, he also has a lot of regulation challenges and attention challenges and things like that. So there's a lot of moving pieces here, but he's made progress. He's made a lot of progress and he will independently initiate a lot. Uh, which was my primary goal when I first started with him because he wasn't really, and I think there was a confusion. He's like, do you want me to try to say this? Do I use this new box? (laughs) You know, like how does this work? Uh, What is the expectation? Which I think oftentimes our students, they don't know when we're kind of doing both and expecting both. You know, it's just like, it gets kind of like convoluted. And so eventually I think we shifted over to the AAC as more primary and we kind of took it back. uh, I guess the verbal you know, speech and working on that more explicitly took a back seat. And then we did see an increase in his independent initiation and all, all those types of things with the AAC.
0: Just to summarize there, I'm hearing you say the the growth over the last four years from a language perspective, and then the greater being a successful communicator has increased. And that is in part to the work that has been done on the AAC tool. Is that fair? Is all that fair?
1: I, yeah, I, I like to say, I'd like to think that, um, you know, because the family came to me and he wasn't really making progress language wise because he was prohibited because of speech intelligibility that was not progressing.
0: And maybe, uh, if, I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, uh, an environment where the communication was push this button, um, not really. Maybe more about compliance than it was communication. Yes, yes. Well, okay, yeah, just bring that in perspective. We have evidence that, uh, basically what I'm hearing you say is, we have evidence over the last four years that the students' language and initiation and ability to have successful communication has improved over the last four years with AAC. Yes. Is all of that a fair statement? Yes, okay. So now let's just ask the same question. Uh, This student has had speech therapy. Again, I put speech in quotes there, meaning we're focusing on sounds.
1: Well, I haven't been explicitly targeting it. So I, I haven't really seen an improvement. And I know that he's kind of been to lots of different SLPs. This is like a case where there's like lots of SLPs joining, sometimes leaving and others joining. So, no, I have not seen a significant improvement in
0: speech and the speech is not helping really become a more effective communicator in any way, based on what you're describing here, it doesn't sound like that making those sounds um, is f- helping anyone understand what they're trying to communicate.
1: No. So far, I have not seen that.
0: So AAC's working and speech isn't.
1: Yeah, I would say that. So now it's like, I'm like, well, maybe this SLP can do some magic <laughs> you know the the part of me's like well maybe like we haven't tried this person or this approach which I know is what family's thinking right
0: is this is this speech therapist doctor strange because I don't how what magic do you know <laughs>
1: I know I know this is like I my, my rational brain totally is with you but like I'm trying to be open I'm trying to be like okay maybe someone new will see something different than you know what we've seen and and I think again it's like how do we I think I, exact, I agree with you, Chris, which is why I've done everything that I've done up until this point to support language development and to support AAC.
0: Well, can I add something here? Right? Again, if it boils down to minutes right, and we're looking at evidence about what, um, what's working and what's not for a student, then I wonder if the question shouldn't be, why are we still focusing on speech? Like wh- why not put more minutes if this if you're going to be paying another speech therapist why not that speech therapist work or 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 less with that speech therapist and another speech therapist that works on language like you let's put more minutes into using the AAC uh, meaning I guess the premise that well if we had worked on speech more then the student would have greater um, speech <laughs> is false we've been working on speech for a number of years here there hasn't been significant improvement we have there hasn't been improvement now let's take out the qualifier of significant there hasn't been improvement but we have been working on aac and we have seen improvements so if we're looking at where do we where do we put our minutes in the future let's go with the one that's working listen i totally agree with you
1: <laughs> but i think the problem is families right you know, I believe that we have to focus on what our families deem to be valuable and important and their goals. And so it kind of opens up a broader discussion of what do you, how do you navigate working, you know, with a family who is still very much uh, attached to the idea that their child will, you know, be able to improve with their verbal speech and, I think that that's a really challenging thing to, you know, share your insight and your experience, and you know, weigh that with being open, being flexible, being you know supportive, and I think that I feel like that's where I'm. That's where it, it feels like sometimes very challenging to share what I know clinically and what I've seen clinically, and to share all of the, you know, things we just talked about, like, look, he's doing great with AAC, but also recognize that many families still are holding on to hope that speech intelligibility will pro- improve over time with the right type of intervention. Um, and then I think they're just kind of chasing speech therapists who are like, oh, maybe it's this SLP who can crack the code, or maybe it's this, you know, approach that will, you know, change things. Um, And to be fair, I feel like, for example, childhood apraxia of speech, if you go to someone who's highly specialized in childhood apraxia of speech and is utilizing the correct type of approach for apraxia, you can see a lot of improvement over time. Now, with all kids, not necessarily. Um, So I do think there's something to be said for finding the right SLP. I've worked with, I've had kids that were working with, you know, number one, uh, I've had kids that have been working with one SLP for years on speech and then they transition to another SLP and they start making improvement right away. So I think that there is definitely something to be said for that. But, you know, when we have students who are very complex with their communication needs, there's lots of different factors involved. Um, You know, it's hard to kind of. It's hard to watch a family kind of keep going down these rabbit holes of different SLPs that, you know, they're hoping will be the thing that makes the difference with verbal speech.
0: It's at the beginning of this, uh, it sounded like you had a quote that you had written down and then you wanted to talk about it. Did you what was that quote that uh, that that you started with? Like the comment that was made by the speech therapist was
1: The speech therapist said I found that students who become proficient with their AAC stop utilizing speech. That wasn't a direct quote, I didn't write it down as she was talking, but like that was the gist, was like students, the the kids that I work with that have AAC and have learned how to use it, stop, you know, trying to use verbal speech um, and aren't practicing verbal speech enough was the gist of what like I was gathering. Again, this is all through my lens, but that's what I like heard. And I was like, yeah, like you're kind of right because he's utilizing AAC as his primary means of communicating now because it's more universally understood. So he is probably trying less, um, but he's trying less with verbal speech and he's putting that energy towards utilizing AAC to communicate in a way that's more universally understood.
0: Well, and, and this brings me back to the user choice here. Like the, I foundationally believe that we should be following the the learner's needs, uh, following the learner as the the person who is in charge of their own life. So if that is what they're using and choosing to use, then let's respect it and go with it. because w- what are they suggesting are they suggesting you should stop using the thing that is help uh, students who have become proficient and start to use their AAC more we should stop doing that no they wouldn't be suggesting that right no so put so so yes maybe it's true okay that's a big maybe but let's say it's maybe it's true that once uh, and someone has determined that this tool is better for me this Um, approach is better for me and I get my needs met I get communicate better uh, I connect with people better using this form than this other form then shouldn't we support their choice
1: yeah I mean I I I completely agree Um, I think it's hard when you have students who have such limited language skills um, to like know with certainty like what are they leaning towards? And like this, this student particular, it's hard to know, like, cause he's so, he is very much trying to utilize words and verbal approximations alongside of using AAC. But again, like part of me thinks he's just been conditioned to like, know that that's the expectation, right?
0: Again, given his choice, and I know I hear what you're saying. It's hard to know for sure. But uh, let me just ask that question. If you, given his choice, what do you think he would use?
1: I think at this point he'd probably utilize AAC, but I don't know. It's, it's, it's really like split 50, 50 in my mind. So, cause it's not like some of our kids are like, sometimes they have a verbal approximation with a word that's familiar. Like when they say hi, you know, they have some type of verbal approximation for that. But he is really like, he is really verbally trying to communicate a lot. Um, So I don't know. It's a tough call. I can't. No. And obviously I'm biased. Obviously I'm like AAC advocate. I don't know. And also we've been doing a pretty intensive AAC approach with him the last couple of years too. So
0: this would be the, te- the true test, right? Is, um, I'm coming, I'm going to go m- meet him, the stranger. And then let's just see which one he goes with, right? Because I'll bet he probably code switches, right? So when he's around you, he's using his AAC more. And when he's around uh, other people that use the AAC, he switches over and uses the AC more. But when he's having the expectation this other person, I speak more, so I try and my, my speech sounds more. So the test would be when he meets somebody new and novel and uh, he's attempting to communicate about that uh whatever he was trying to communicate to that new person which foot does he lead that dance with you know um would if we had the if we had the camera set up and we were recording it like okay how many times does he try um to use his words first okay is his when i say use his words use his words on his device first or use his words coming out of his mouth uh first let's count that down let's see how many and i wonder which one comes out of the wash most with a new novel person because then that would be an indicator potentially of the choice that the the student is making as opposed to the expectation that the person has become accustomed to because they know, oh, when I'm with Rachel, I use this. And when I'm with uh, Dr. Strange, I use this.
1: I don't know. There's no easy solution here. I just thought it was relevant to talk about and discuss because, you know, it comes up often in our practice, which I think is, again, challenging to navigate because you want to be open to families and their wishes and what they you know want to prioritize. But we also need to, you know, prioritize language.
0: Well, I'll just say my experience has not been what this this speech therapist has said, meaning. Um, what I find is much more frequent is uh, someone who is, is both learning s- is, is putting minutes into speech therapy and putting minutes into AAC. The, if if, uh, if it's in the cards for them to become more proficient using their speech, then they will do that and AAC drops off. And so, I, again, you, you know what I'm going to say. The least, the least dangerous assumption is to provide the AAC because I'd, be, I'd hate for anyone to hear this banter and be like, well, okay, it sounds like we need to put more minutes into speech because there's a chance that that AAC is stopping them from being be, becoming better at speech. And I just don't think that's, I don't think any evidence, I don't think there's any research that supports that. Um, and, and that is more dangerous to me than giving them AAC.
1: One final thought which is always a challenge when I'm working with kind of these two approaches, we'll call them one language with AAC, the other approach speech and speech improvement or speech intelligibility improvement. When you're working with a child to help increase speech intelligibility and articulation, it's reliant on high levels of prompting modeling and imitation Which is in direct opposition of what we're trying to teach with language and AAC. Meaning, you know, our kids who do intensive speech therapy, you know, for speech articulation are watching our mouths, getting tons of, you know, prompts and cues on what to say in specific contexts and how to say it better, right? So they're looking to adults and watching their mouth and doing all these things, high level of prompting. And when we're thinking about language, like we want kids to be generating language independently. And so we're kind of in direct opposition when we're doing both of these approaches at the same time, which I've talked on other podcast episodes about, especially childhood apraxia of speech um, and, you know, how to navigate that. But I find that if we're working on speech at a high level and, you know, we're telling parents every time they say, you know, more, make sure they're looking at your mouth and, you know, And then I find that kids become over prompted and they're very prompt dependent to use those words and that language which again is kind of the opposite of what we're trying to encourage with language development and AAC Um, and so I feel like that's the other reason that I'm more inclined to focus on language because if we're focusing on a language type of intervention we're scaffolding support for students and giving them you know the prompting that they need in order to be successful but we're quickly fading that Um, and I find that kids are just who are conditioned to work on speech specifically they're way for us to say the word and they're imitating it. And, you know, they're looking at our mouth and trying to do exactly what we're doing. And I just don't think it helps move the needle for language.
0: No argument here. <laughs> Sounds about right. Well, thanks for
1: talking through that with uh, me, Chris. It was uh, something that came up and I was like, it was one of those moments where I heard it and I was like, oh, I hate that. <laughs> I hate that. That was just said to me. And I'm like, how do I, how do I you know approach this how do i deal
0: with this well you know one of the things we talk about when it comes to aac and the, especially in the breadth you're mentioning like uh core vocabulary is the ability to someone who learns the language to protect themselves and so that also makes me think immediately if this person if this if this uh you say 12 years old right um if this person needed to report something to his parents What mode would they use? It sounds like AAC and putting words together with language uh, would be more effective than maybe uh, more immediately effective than trying to draw out the speech sounds. Um, And maybe that ties into our interview today.
1: Yes, I had the pleasure of having Gemma White back on the podcast. She's already been on talking all about body safety. Um so she came on to talk about the importance of teaching our students um not only about their bodies but how to keep their bodies safe. So there's uh definitely some information about self advocacy. We talk all about um you know things that are a little taboo. Uh she presented at AAC in the cloud and uh her presentation title which I thought was so funny and so great uh was where's the penis. Uh so she's talking about vocabulary needs to be put into AAC systems. Uh, We're so afraid to kind of talk about body parts and things like that, but really we need to teach about those things so that we can keep our students safe. Um, So it's an amazing talk. So happy that she was able to come on uh, with us again and chat all about it and share some really great resources and insight.
0: Without further ado, let's listen to Rachel's interview with Gemma White. hi everybody this is Chris the vice president of impact voices I have exciting news registration is open for impact voices living out in celebration it is time to register for this exciting new conference this is the only conference bringing the business and AAC community together to network we are going to
1: impact empower and connect everybody. Go to
0: impactvoices.org backslash registration to register. For the best room rate, reserve your hotel room before September 9th. We are looking forward to seeing you there.
1: Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Meadle, joined today by Gemma White. Gemma has been on the podcast before. Gemma, you're back to talk to us today. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm so excited. So Gemma, you did an amazing presentation at AAC in the cloud this year, um, and I want to talk all about it. You had reached out and I was like, oh my gosh, flagging this, need to you know, watch this session. Um, and I definitely think it's an area that we don't talk about enough. So let's dive in. What was your session about? And we're going to talk all about it today. It's an important one.
2: I love AAC in the cloud. It's amazing because it's free and you can go back to it. Um and I spoke about where is the penis equipping AAC users to discuss personal and body safety. And it's the topic that's really important to me.
1: Yeah, I i mean, of course, when I read the title, I was like, whoa, someone said penis, um, which I loved. And I feel like it's important to say it out loud and to talk about these things. Um, you know, oftentimes I think we shy away as clinicians from, um, you know, discussing these types of, you know, concepts and it's like, how do we navigate that in private practice or in schools or with families when we're talking about it? How do we decide what to program and, you know, how to target it? And, you know, I think it's such an important thing that we don't talk about enough. So let's kind of dive in. Um, Tell me a little bit of the cliff notes of your session and, you know, what you think is important when it comes to talking about, you know, bodily autonomy and these, this type of language.
2: So I think what happened, is you need to start with the statistics right for me it was very very personal there was a knock on my principal's door where my son's class had been subject to his grade in the year before and there was that was like a real wake up right that abuse happens Everywhere, and like you know, the statistics, right? There's one in four boys, um, people, one in four people who identify as girls, and one in fourteen who identify as boys, who experience child sex abuse as a crime. Like that's a huge figure. So you start with the statistics. You've got resistance. You put it out there. Like these numbers are out there. These pe- This is happening to people who we are in contact with. So under that premise it's happening then you need to go the language has to be there and it echoes for me um it echoes in collaboration we need to be a collaborative multidisciplinary teams and how can my psychologists talk about the penis and the vagina when they're not in 90 percent of the language systems that i'm recommending to toddlers and to early children, to children who were in education. And I had this like wake up call that, you know, where the penis wasn't there. So where is the penis was (laughs) literally, where is the penis?
1: I love that. I love that. Um, It's funny when you kind of hear the backstory of how a title came to be of something. Um, And it makes sense. It's like, where is it? And, um, you know, how, uh, how often it is that we think about, the kinds of things that we're teaching. And I don't think this is probably on a lot of people's radar. So I think we probably have a lot of listeners out there you know, who are always trying to support their students in the best way possible. Um, This might be a brand new concept, like a, oh, wow, like I never thought about that. Um, You know, let's talk a little bit about how we actually go about having conversations with families and, you know, putting this into practice because, you know, we can know, we can know the statistics, we can know, like, it's important to teach and to talk about, but like, how do we navigate that in a world where I feel like it's very uh, taboo to, you know, kind of have these discussions?
2: So educate health and sex education has to be part of every curriculum and Mm -hmm. us as speech and language pathologists need to take responsibilities for our role within it and be proactive about teaching um, health and sort of health and safety and stay in your lane. Right. Definitely stay within your scope of practice, but work collaboratively. So we came, you know, I took what happened within my school after that incident, they came up with a really robust um, curriculum that looked at What they were teaching in terms of private part identification, looking at who can see and who can touch, looking at comfortable versus uncomfortable touches, looking at surprise versus secrets and identifying trusted adults as a curriculum. So if you have a way that you've worked to teach it, then me as a speech therapist needs to come in and look at the language that those psychologists are using. Look at the language that lawyers that are involved with prosecuting sexual abuse cases are using and need. Um, One of the things that in my research, I was talking to the child advocacy unit at WID, where I work, and they deal with a lot of sexual abuse cases. And she noted to me that many children who are abused don't have any sort of label for their private parts. So, mm-hmm. how can you say that there's something wrong or someone's touching or something hurts if you don't even have a label for that part of you? And something that I want to bring up in terms of private part identification, because it's something that really I really struggled with and that differed from how I see it and how I chose to teach and address it to how my school did. Um, and it it takes into account who my users are. So one of the things I spoke about is, um, and I actually worked. I worked with some non-binary, uh, the non-binary SLP from Australia. She she was so kind to reach out and give me her time. And I must say, in trawling Instagram and looking through people who transgender advocates trying to like get some of their time was really challenging. And she was somebody like you know, people wanted money, and I was like, I don't have money. It's in the cloud. It's free. Like I just <laughs> right. want some. I want to get this right, right? I yeah, want to get yeah. this right. I realized that many people who are on the autism spectrum, people who are autistic um, have very differing views from what I grew up with in terms of what gender is. And having a gender inclusive environment is really, impl- is really important. And then more than that, if, if people have differing views about gender or if gender is confusing to them, to then put private part identification on top of that is not right. So you really need to separate the gender and the sheer private part identification and abuse. And that those are separate topics that you talk about separately. And that differed from how my school addressed it. Um, They are still very gender specific. Um, but I, I, I sort of developed a social story as it were, and I addressed that in AC in the cloud, um, about how to look at private parts and what your private parts are, um, in,
1: in a way. So, so it sounds like you have been kind of in collaboration with your school, um, that you're working at, and that has been how you've. No, no, that's not it. Tell me what. It's not,
2: it's not the school I'm working. It's actually the school that my children, I have five five kids. Gotcha, gotcha. My own. Sorry. Um, okay. Yeah, no, I I work at um, WIHD and I have a private practice, um, but I have five children that go to a school um, and it was my oldest son's class, which this was going back four or five years, the, the person that was involved with the abuse is now in jail um, it, it, it came from my kid's own school. So, mm-hmm. and they have actually the psychologist from the school. I did collaborate with her on this and she was really kind enough to let me share a lot of her resources. Cause a lot of this is Dr. Shoshana's work, mm-hmm. um, in terms of, you know, breaking down that curriculum. Mm-hmm.
1: Cause so the reason I was kind of going down that path was I'm thinking about you know, an SLP who's listening to this podcast thinking like, yeah, I really want to try to do this. And like, how do I approach this? And it feels like, you know, potentially something that you need to talk to your administrators about. Um, So do you have any thoughts or ideas about how to actually put this into practice? Um, Again, I think it's an area where people feel very unsure and when we feel unsure, sometimes we just don't do anything. Um, And I think, you know, the important kind of takeaway here is that we need to start doing something um you know how do we start integrating this in to our sessions and you know how do we have conversations with both the you know wherever we're working um and also then with families and you know it feels like it's a family i guess decision maybe that we need to kind of work through with families um i'm imagining that you know some families I don't know, don't feel comfortable with that. You know, The, for example, penis and vagina being programmed into, you know, their seven-year-old's uh, device. I think you have to sit, turn around to them and say,
2: no, you have a penis and you have a vagina. And when we're toileting, I want to tell your child, I want to model the language, put your penis away. When you're, it's, it, it is not a taboo. If we are embarrassed, we are assigning, if We're, if we assign embarrassment to body parts, then we're embarrassed and we can't teach them. It's, it should not be an embarrassing. This is, this, this is part of your body. What are you going to do? If you, this is not all about abuse. Like what if you, what if something hurts you, you need to be able to have those words. So you have to have access to, to the language. The language has to be there that you need to teach Mm -hmm. the words like safety, Right. Do you know the word safe isn't in touch chat? Isn't that shocking? Really? Yes. Actually. It's really shocking. (laughs) So the word safe is not, you know, I say to people, have a safe body. We we, when I cross the road, I'm safe. This is not a foreign concept. I'm just talking about body safety and body autonomy Mm -hmm. in a, you know, and being very explicit um, about teaching body safety from an avenue of protection we need to you know a lot of you you know what came into it recently I had a parent approach one of my team members to start discussing body safety as he was getting ready to transition into a group home why are we starting discussing this now Mm -hmm. (laughs) we should have been talking about it years ago Mm -hmm. Uh, and I that so there are concrete ways you know to have a concrete curriculum to discuss the statistics to discuss the problems you can look at it at an admin level you can go at it from above and you can certainly have those discussions on a very practical level i walk into a classroom i personalize a child's device and i put in their name and i put in their body part and it's Mm -hmm. not even it's just something that i do now I do it as part of routine adjustments to language systems that I'm making to that routine personalization. It's not a discussion. It's not a lava, It's not a big thing. It's in there. Mm -hmm. And if a kid goes poop, 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 vagina, poop, 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 penis. Well, then I'm going to talk about different ways. I'm not going to take that language away from them. Like we don't tape kids mouths shut. Why am I not going to put penis
1: in there? The kid's got one. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, listen. I completely agree with everything you're saying. I just know that there's people out there listening, being like, "This sounds great in theory, but like this ain't gonna fly in my school or with this family." Or and so I'm really trying to figure out how can we attack this when we do have some pushback and resistance. Um, so what I'm hearing from you is obviously talking about the statistics, which I think are really powerful. Um, you know, and you know, kind of to add on to that, we know that individuals with disabilities are abused a lot more frequently um, than you know neurotypical or people without disabilities. Um, and then you have to imagine that it's an even bigger you know subset of the population of that population when there's communication challenges like we don't have the ability to say when something bad is happening to us, which I know is definitely a huge fear of many, parents. Um, You know, oftentimes we see parents who don't even want to send their children to school who are, you know, complex communicators because they're like, they can't tell me what happened to them at school. So I want them to be with me, you know, all the time so I can make sure that they're safe. Um, You know, so I think that that angle, as far as, you know, all the statistics is really powerful. Um, And, you know, what else I'm hearing is like having some like pretty honest conversations with administrators and normalizing this, like this is something that should be normalized, um, and something routine. Um, and so getting comfortable with that and having, you know, maybe those conversations with administrators, um, who are like, you know, starting to understand that this is a normal part of, you know, uh, an AAC system is having vocabulary and language like this, and then, you know, teaching about it. Um, is that kind of a good reiteration?
2: Yeah. I mean, so one, One of the things I want to sort of touch on is that there was actually a study that looked at abuse with AAC users Mm. and 97% of those who experienced a crime knew the perpetrators. Wow. So you you have to realize that abuse happens to people within people in those children's lives. Mm -hmm. Um, 71% 71% of people, those people reported it being multiple victimizations and multiple types of victimizations, and only 28% of them reported those experiences to the police. So really those, yes, the statistics are extremely powerful, but they're very shocking because the view that maybe I had in the 80s when I grew up of the, the abuser being a stranger that I don't know who comes at you in their car offering you candy mm-hmm. is not the truth. Mm -hmm. The people who abuse are people in people's lives. So that that parent that has a fear has quite legitimate fears. And -hmm. I would legitimize this. You're right. So let me teach your child to say no. Mm -hmm. Let me Mm -hmm. teach your child to say stop. Mm -hmm. And let's let's honor when that child says stop, we're done. So that is definitely, you know, one side of things. The the other point is yes, it's the administrators but it's also working collaboratively multidisciplinary with like the psychologists, because this is really their curriculums, it's their departments, and we're just supporting the linguistics. And Dr. Shoshana, I had a really interesting discussion because we were talking about, um, they were like comfortable versus uncomfortable. Like it's very important to her like to think about like not good and bad, like, you know, maybe I ejaculated, maybe it felt good, right? So those terms to her are very problematic, good touch versus, thinking about how comfortable you felt uh, with it is more important. But I sort of said, a lot of my kids that I work with don't, that's too challenging, right? That's not, they're not quite there linguistically. So Mm -hmm. it's a balance in terms of language that I think they have access to and what we, the concepts we need to teach and really working collaboratively with your teams to figure out a way to discuss body safety and personal safety um, and personal autonomy in, Mm -hmm. in ways that are manageable and talking about it in small bites and making it as part of, part of everything that you're doing. Like if everybody's modeling, you know, when you're going to the bathroom, those body parts, that's just part of what we're doing. If everybody is talking about safety and if all of the people in your children's lives are in your devices, then you're going to have a better chance of, you know, John bad, Mary good. Mm -hmm. Even that's giving you clues. Like maybe it's right. Maybe it's not, but Let's give children the opportunity to talk about who the help, the safe people in their lives. Talk about the helpers. Identify people who are going to be people they can go to with issues. And often, SLPs are those people. If you've ever seen the Power of Core Vocabulary video, I was the- just I
1: thinking of that, Gemma. Yes, by Gail Van Tatenhove. <laughs> right. Like,
2: what yeah. does that tell us? Jo- John is John is given time and space by his SLP to talk about his abuse and we are often those people that people come to.
1: Yeah. We'll definitely link to uh, the video that we're referencing essentially just for people who haven't seen the video. It is a video, um, Gail Van Tatenhove, who is a legend in the AAC world, um, you know, was working with this uh, man. And he, you know, when she came to see him one day, um used a lot of language. They no feed me. They don't come um basically being able to communicate that he wasn't being fed and he was being abused in the home that he was in. And, you know, we we actually, Chris and I use this as an example to talk about how absolutely essential core languages is um because we don't necessarily think, to program all of these things into an AAC system. And so, you know, generative language and having access to a keyboard and having access to core language is how, you know, our our students who then become, you know, adults, um, you know, every AAC user has the ability to communicate when something's wrong and when, when something isn't right. Um, so we'll link to that video in the show notes just so you guys can um, watch it it's very powerful and it's really nice to use um, when you're talking about core language um, it kind of brings everybody's mood down a little bit but it's one of those videos where it's really powerful to see like this is why core language is so important um, this is why we need to focus on not just snack time and you know all the things that we you know see our students get stuck in as far as language and their AAC use um, so I'm happy you brought that up because I was thinking I should we should talk about that
2: um, the other thing i want to talk about is as kids get older um you know we've had in our districts some issues where you know kids are mean and they take pictures in the bathroom and they they send them out and again like kind of looking at the figures like i have an eight-year-old who's already been sent sex
0: an eight-year-old
2: eight-year-old sexting is already happening at eight
1: that's really Um,
2: crazy and and, well according to the was it there was a parenting and general pediatrics did a one right but one in four children between 12 and 14 are receiving sex and one in seven are sending them so like that's a whole crazy world like that is child pornography and it is illegal and that is what we have to say but you know often with there's language that kids, uh, tweens and teens are using that we have to be aware of Mm -hmm. um, when they're talking about, you know, like, like spill in and, you know, actually you guys had a really fun uh, episode recently where you spoke about like a lot of teen language, right? So, but within that, there's also this, there's cyber bullying and there's lots of things happening online that our AAC users become part of, and do they have the tools to, to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, not just this, there's the younger kids, um, but we want to continue to talk about body safety as we get older and body changes. That's, you know, again, that's not our lane, but making sure people have the opportunity and the language to say that somebody tried, you know, somebody tried to tell them that so somebody sent them a sex or they asked mm-hmm. them to send a nude picture and mm-hmm. how you might respond to somebody sent me a, you know, What do you do if somebody asks for a nude of you? Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's really interesting to kind of talk through and think through. Um, again, I think that like, We're so focused on like, oh, let's targets go and more and, you know, all this language. And I think, you know, one takeaway for me is and something that I've always felt really strongly about is from the moment we start, you know, teaching kids communication and language skills. If we have to start focusing on self-advocacy and we have to honor when students are telling us, no, stop, all done. And that's the kind of language that we need to teach first. Um, and oftentimes when I'm working with students and you know, people say, oh, well, they're not motivated by anything. I'm like, everyone is motivated by something. And sometimes our students are most motivated by not wanting to do the things that we want them to do, whether that's sitting in their classroom or doing an activity. And so really teaching at a foundational level, no stop, all done, um, I think is a really good launching off point. And then, you know, how do we get into the granular details of, you know, more self-advocacy as far as body safety and all of the other things that we need to think about to really prepare our students for the future and, you know, for a time where maybe they're not going to be, you know, alongside of their parents and they're going to be living more independently. Um, And I think that, you know, a good starting off point is definitely like the kind of protesting language and, um, the self-advocacy, but, you know, we need to expand beyond just, just the, the basic things that we're thinking about. Um, and I think that this, hopefully this episode helps to kind of expand people's minds and their approach and the clinical work that they're doing. You're like, and drop the mic. (laughs) Is there anything else? Is there anything else, Gemma? I don't know. I think, I think that's kind of what I want to talk to you about. Like, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that like we need to,
2: I mean, to talk mean, one through. Of the, one of the things we talk about is grooming, you know, like, the, and I, I speak about, I spoke about in the presentation, understanding what the red flags of
1: grooming behavior is mm-hmm. um, because can, we, Gem, Gemma, can you define grooming for people who don't know what you're talking about? People think that we're talking about brushing our hair.
2: Oh, okay. <laughs> so grooming is where you would take, a, you know, you have like a relationship and it's really like the individuals don't appear scary and they Mm -hmm. sort of single out one or two children and slowly steadily break down the natural boundaries Mm -hmm. of a child. So it might be like, they, they reward them, you know, Oh, stay after lesson. like, you know, let me show you this really special what, you know, whatever it is. Um, And then gradually start to share more and more inappropriate information and gain trust to break down boundaries to eventually Mm -hmm. abuse inside some way mm-hmm. um, and actually you know it's not necessarily um, uh, so it's not necessarily an adult sometimes with individuals in group homes or older students you've got almost a child versus an adult like a 16 year old with a 21 mm-hmm. year old you know mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. a that, that those kind of problematic relationships can occur, but grooming is really that process. And us as educators being aware of who those individuals in our institutions might be like, if you see something like that going on, you know, report it to your administration mm-hmm. because these people are in our schools. Mm-hmm. They have made our way in our schools and that is, they make their way into In the position to be able to abuse people. And that's why it continues to happen. So being watchful as a responsible profession Mm -hmm. for your, 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 your co-workers.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also think kind of to piggyback on that. You know we're mandated reporters as speech language pathologists, and really understanding the responsibility behind that. Um, luckily, I'm I'm uh, I'm licensed in Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania has a mandatory uh, child abuse uh, CEU that you have to do every time you renew your license. And so every you know two years, uh, I renew my Pennsylvania license, and I have to do the mandated reporter training. But it's just like a really good reminder because sometimes child abuse can be really subtle, and there's all different forms of abuse and you know the takeaway here is if you feel like something might not be right you need to do something about it um so often we kind of rationalize well like you know it's not that bad or i'm not really sure and it's like if you're even having the thought just tell someone you know just report it um you know they have uh, states all have a way to report child abuse and you know it's really it's something that you should just kind of go to and not be afraid of um, just because so many kids are unfortunately being abused every single day. And, um, you know, we as speech language pathologists have the ability to do something about that um, if we suspect anything. And so I feel like it's a, a good reminder of if you have like some type of gut feeling that something's not right, like it's probably not right.
2: Yeah. And it's your responsibility to say so.
1: Okay. Gemma, is there anything else that we need to talk about when it comes to like Body autonomy, body safety. What are we missing? in anything?
2: I mean, there's lots, but I think that's pretty much exhausted it for now. Well, <laughs> it's a huge, a huge subject. It's huge subjects. It is. Thank like, you letting me talk about it.
1: Of course. And I would definitely encourage everyone to go watch Gemma's presentation at AAC in the Cloud. We'll link to that in the show notes too. Um, all the information you shared today, Gemma, is so important. And I feel like this is an area of our field that we don't talk about enough. You don't hear people talking about this. And so I'm happy that you um, you know, decided I'm going to try to present this and you did and AAC in the cloud, uh, you know, accepted the proposal and we're now able to share this information on this podcast. Um, I definitely think that all of the gems of wisdom that you shared are really helpful. Um, it's something that we don't think about enough and it's something that it's our responsibility to think about. um, especially because we are in charge, typically SLPs are in charge of, you know, the, the vocabulary that we're not just programming, but also the, uh, the vocabulary that we're teaching our students. Um, and so we need to make sure that we're really set our students up for, um, you know, success and safety more than anything else. So Gemma, everyone who comes on this podcast, I asked the question, if you had a billboard that every SLP could see, or not just SLPs, anyone, what would your billboard say? And I feel like we already did this, but we're going to do it again. Do you have a new one? We did do it, but for this
2: one, it would be you too can be the penis person.
1: (laughs) Everyone can be the penis person. I like it. I like it. All right. Thank you so much, Gemma. So for Talking With Tech, I'm Rachel Madel joined today by Gemma White. Thank you guys so much for listening and we'll talk to you guys next week.